Today we begin our approach to the text of Colossians, and we want to initiate that with a comment about the structure of the epistle. So let's begin with a consideration of the macro structure, and that prefix macro, uh, can anyone tell me what that means? Large, broad, overall. So we're examining the broad or overall structure of the letter. And we'll borrow a term which is common in photography, namely the word aperture, which means what? The opening, the opening of the lens in a camera. Or in this case, beginning. So aperture is synonymous with the opening or beginning of the letter, and closure, of course, with the conclusion or ending of the letter. Now, as you have been trained by me, (laughs) those of you who have been with me for a long time, you've been trained by me to look at the beginning and ending of things, particularly in uh, biblical pericopes. Here we're looking at the beginning and ending of the entire letter. So as you examine the beginning and ending, which would take you over to chapter 4, verse 18, and looking here at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, what do you notice? There's a Paul. Paul. Very good. So there's a symmetry or a recursive use of the apostle's name. Very good. Anything else? Grace and you. Okay, the prepositions vary, but uh, the personal pronoun does not. So here we have three uh, terms at the beginning and ending which are recursive or duplicated or symmetrical. Paul, grace, and you. Paul's name plus his benedictory wish grace to you, his benedictory wish to his readers, envelopes the book. The recursion or the symmetry forms a brief inclusio around the book as a whole. The contents of the epistle to the Colossians are folded into, book-ended, with Paul's identity and his spiritual experience. He is Christ's own possession, Paul, that is his identity, and and he is a recipient of the benediction, the grace benediction of God. He is Paul of the Damascus Road and the risen Jesus of Nazareth, not Saul of Tarsus of Gamaliel of Jerusalem. He is Christian Paul, not Jewish Saul. He has left Judaism behind for the surpassing excellence of Christ Jesus. Now, we must not lose sight 
of the narrative frame. Paul brackets his letter with parallel, symmetrical, inclusive elements of his own biography. His Christian name and life in the risen Lord Jesus, plus his reception of the divine and supernatural gift. The divine and supernatural gift. I'll use Edwards' language, graceful and free. All of which he wishes with blessing, with benediction for the Colossians. He wishes them the life of the risen Lord Jesus and the grace gift, not the works merit. The grace gift, not the works merit work of the Jewish doctrine of salvation. The grace gift of righteousness and forgiveness via the life, death, and resurrection of Christ Jesus. Even from the outset of this epistle, there is a Pauline narrative biography in the aperture as well as the closure of his letter to the Colossian Christian brothers and sisters. Don't speed past it. All right, now, Paul's epistles all have epistolary prescripts. Now, we have noticed these before in our series on Philemon, and the link is embedded there. I remind you that it's sometimes easier after these lectures have been presented or posted on the nwts.edu website, when you can look at the handout that is in your hand and actually click on the link and go directly to what the link is pointing to. So rather than typing all this out before they're posted, I remind you that it's easier just to wait until they're posted. And then if you want to see the links, as you may want to see the pictures of Colossae from last time, then it's easier just to click on the handout and the link that's highlighted there. At any rate, we've talked about the prescripts of Paul's epistles in the series on Philemon, and I refer you to that discussion if you're interested. A prescript is preliminary material. It's material which the apostle attaches to the letter before he gets into the body or the the, uh, focus or the body is the best word, the body of his discussion. All right, so they are uh, standard approaches. Uh, Each of the prescripts that is on top of one of his epistles, and prescript can mean above or upon or before uh, what is written before the real uh, letter itself proper is written. They're all virtually the same. That is, they have the same pattern. So let's examine that pattern once again, as we did in Philemon, and remind ourselves of how Paul begins his letters. And in fact, as you look at the prescripts in all of his letters, you can sort this out 
according to the categories that we're going to identify. First of all, the sender. And who is the sender here? Paul is the sender. The sender's title is second. What's the title here? Just shout it out. Apostle, very good. The authorization, the authorization, the authority by which he speaks. What is it here? Christ Jesus. The co-sender. Who is the co-sender here? Timothy. Is he the co-author? Christine is shaking her head. No, he's not the co-author. I think that is correct. Why? There are those that believe he is, and so I I make you aware of there are scholars who think he is co-author. Why? Uh, Christine, you want to defend your no? That was a rather emphatic shake of your head. I think you're right, so it's a good, good emphatic shake. Yes, you're, you're looking for the right thing. Where is it? Can anyone help her? Which, where is it? Where do you find that? Chapter 4, what verse? Yes, at the end of the epistle. All right. And in between, as Christina, as Christina alluded, he uses his own identification. So, um, I think it's likely that uh, Timothy is not a co-author. He may be a bearer of this letter in some form. Uh, he is a bearer of other letters of the apostle in other forms. <clears throat> but here, he is just simply a co-sender. That is, he's sending it along with Paul, but he has no uh, influence on what is written. All right, the readers, number five, or the recipients. Here, it's... Colossians, very good. And the salutation or greeting is last. And here, what is the salutation or greeting? Grace and peace be to you. All right. Now, on a minor point on the salutation, there are those that suggest that that sequence, grace and peace, is based upon Hellenistic and Jewish greetings. Hellenistic with the word grace, charis, which does not mean in Greco-Roman culture what it means in the New Testament, just simply a greeting of good wishes and peace, which in Hebrew would be what word? Shalom. Shalom. So that the combination is alleged to be a reference to the constitutive nationalities or constitutive ethnic backgrounds of those that make up the Colossian church, namely Hellenistic or Greek in background and Jewish or Jewish converts also in background. I'm not persuaded of that, but nonetheless, I note it as some, uh, as, as an indication that 
<clears throat> there's an attempt by some to say that Paul is being comprehensive in the benediction with respect to language which would be particularly appreciated by the Greek-speaking audience or the Jewish-speaking audience. All right, now, this is standard protocol for the apostles' letters. As I said, as you look at his letters, you can line out these six categories for each of them. Now, we've talked a little bit about the prescript or prescription, the prefix pre, meaning before or above, can also be called the subscription. Now here, subscription is being used in its technical Latin form of construction. The preposition sub in Latin means under, and so under the writing doesn't make much sense to us, but if you think of it as the one undertaking the writing, So the subscriber is the one that's undertaking the actual penning of the epistle. And here it would be in verse 1, the author plus his companion Paul plus his companion Timothy. Inscription, once again being used in its particularly uh, Latin form, because actually all of these words are derived from Latin prepositions and the verbs Scribo to write. Inscription here with the uh, more accusative form of the preposition in, which means into or unto. So uh, inscription would be written unto, to whom is it written? And adscription makes it literal because ad, the preposition in Latin, means to written to directly. So inscription and adscription would be. Uh, synonyms in this case, though uh, using a form of in which we don't usually think of. When we think of in, we think of position on, not direction towards. And the recipients in verse 2a would be the cautions. They would be the object of the inscription, adscription. And finally, the salutation, and I'm labeling it not only salutation, but benediction, a greeting, and a benediction uh, because these are words of well-wishing. These are words of benevolence. What is a benediction? It is a well-saying, good-saying. Bene means good in Latin. So good words of kindness or good words of benevolence on the Apostles Paul, Paul I greet you with words of benevolence, grace, and peace be to you. Now, this prescript, this particular one that we've just been examining in Colossians 1, 1, and 2, is almost exactly like the prescript in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 1. There is a slight difference, which we will note later on, But nonetheless, he follows the very same pattern, even with respect to the phrase, the will of God. All right, any question about that form? This is a way of realizing that the apostle is uh, habitual in some ways. Uh, He changes what needs to be changed with respect to the recipients. He sometimes adds more in the salutation. 
He sometimes stretches that salutation out for a very long time in the epistle to the Romans. But nonetheless, this is the basic pattern of how he writes his letters, and so you can analyze them in this way. And as you do so, you think about the content of each of those six elements. Or at least you should, because he does it on purpose under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. All right, now, the word apostle in verse 1 raises the question of what makes an apostle. How does one qualify as an apostle? He names himself as an apostle, and so we pause to reflect upon what that means. Well, the the root word means one who sent forth. But, of course, we refer it to the apostolic office or the apostolic role that Paul himself possesses along with the other twelve. Remembering 1 Corinthians 15, he names himself along with the other twelve as one born out of due time. Well, what is the qualification which qualifies one as an apostle? Well, it's easy to figure it out from Paul's case because it is one who saw the risen Christ after his death and crucifixion. Of course, that occurred in the apostle's life on the Damascus Road where he saw the risen Christ and his life was changed entirely. In an instant, seeing the resurrection of Christ, seeing the resurrection of a human, seeing the resurrection which is the resurrection of the final day of world's history, seeing the resurrection right before his eyes changed him on the spot. Because he was a Jew. And he'd been told that resurrection would never come until the very last day of the world. And here the last day of the world is right in front of his face. And he says, this must be true. This Christ must be Messiah. Everything's different in view of the risen Christ. It's true for the other 12. Everything's different seeing the risen Christ, talking to him, touching him, eating with him. Everything is different with the risen Christ. They're an entirely new body of believers. The resurrection appearance, the resurrection encounter, the resurrection vitality transforms these men, transforms their character, transforms their role. Resurrection is crucial. So my seminary professors taught me, no, the body of Jesus didn't rise. They were all ministers in the Presbyterian Church, United Presbyterian Church. Body of Jesus didn't rise because dead bodies don't rise after all. We know that. Immanuel Kant taught us that. Voltaire taught us that. All the rationalists, David Hume taught us that. All the liberals of the Enlightenment taught us that dead bodies don't rise. When was the last time you saw a dead body rise? We didn't see any dead bodies rise. You haven't seen any dead bodies rise today. Therefore, dead bodies don't rise. Right? True. False. 
these 13 men testified the fact that dead bodies do rise. And the Bible records the fact. And that fact changed their lives. And their lives turned the world upside down. It's that fact of the resurrection that climaxes the crucifixion. Because it underscores the historicity that he was dead, dead, a corpse. But he was alive, alive three days later, a living, breathing, resuscitated, resurrected human being. That'll change your life. That'll stop you dead in your tracks. That'll call you to fall down in blindness on the Damascus Road. That'll call you to cry out, Who are you, Lord? Notice he addresses him, Lord. That'll stop you and make you nothing less than a Christian and no longer a Jew. Okay, so an apostle is one who has seen the risen Christ and therefore attests the historicity of the resurrection. Not like my seminary professors. Oh, yes, Jesus is risen. He's risen in spirit. He's an inspiring human being. If he's not risen in the body, then we are of all men most miserable and everyone who said he did is a liar, and you can close the door of the Christian church and you go join some cult. These men gave their life, in many instances, to the testimony that that event of Jesus of Nazareth on a cross was historical fact, and that event of an empty tomb and Jesus risen from the dead three days later is a fact of history as well. The facticity, the historicity of the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Without that, no Christianity. Without that, if those seminary professors are right, without that, shut the door on the church. The liberal mind cannot abide the supernatural. As B.B. Warfeld points out in his famous article on supernatural Christianity, without that element, you do not have a religion different from any pagan religion in the world. What other religion has got a risen Savior? What other religion in the world has got an atoning Savior? All right, so the apostle is one who because he has seen the risen Christ, which means that he knows that he was crucified, attest to the historicity of the death, crucifixion death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. First qualification for an apostle. He appeared to me last of all as one born out of due time. 1 Corinthians 15. All right, second element. The apostle receives his commission to preach or to spread the gospel directly from the risen Christ. Go ye therefore into all nations, 
Apostle Paul commissioned by Ananias to go and be an apostle to the nations, to the Gentiles. Jesus gave him that commission on the Damascus Road. It was confirmed when Ananias laid hands on him and his blindness disappeared. All of them, including Matthias, who replaced Judas Iscariot, all of them endorsed by the commission coming from the risen Christ to spread the gospel to the ends of the world. Risen Christ commissioned them. Risen Christ said, preach the gospel to every creature. Are there any apostles today? You see, understanding that unique apostolic role, that apostolic commission, understanding the uniqueness of it, the singularness of it, the, <clears throat> the particularity of it, particularly for these individuals, answers the question whether there are any apostles today. Anyone claiming to be an apostle of Jesus Christ is a phony, is a fake. Because there are no longer any apostles. These 13 men were given to the church specifically to establish and lay the foundation for her. Ephesians 4. After their death, no one else can claim to have seen the risen Christ, which confirms or attests the crucified Jesus and had been commissioned directly by him to preach that message. We are under servants if we proclaim the gospel. We are not apostolic officers. So let's have no confusion about the apostles' office. It is unique and particular to those in the first century, and it died when they died. It did not continue. Something else goes on, but not the apostolic office and role. Because, of course, no one in 2017 could say, I've seen the risen Christ, and he has directly commissioned me to preach the gospel. They may think they do, but those are visions which qualify one for a psychiatric couch, not for a role in the church. Number three. Pardon? How come the Pope don't have a You have to take that up with the Vatican. Number three. The apostle is one who received the Holy Spirit with the supernatural gifts attached to that charismatic endowment, namely the gifts of miraculous healings, the gifts of miraculous tongues, the gifts of miraculous visions, the so-called charismatic gifts. All of the apostles possessed them, and we have the demonstrations from many of their uh, works recorded in the book of Acts and beyond. Now, as we pointed out, that the apostolic office has ceased. So what goes to endorse or test the apostolic office also ceases, namely these miraculous gifts. 
Now, I'm not denying here that in the primitive church, in the early church, the book of Acts, Corinthians, and so on, that there were others experiencing the miraculous gifts. But notice the conjunction, the connection between the gifts and the apostolic role, the conjunction between the gifts and the beginning of the gospel proclamation. That conjunction ceases when we have the written record. That conjunction ceases when the scriptures are are being distributed and being preached and being shared. In other words, as the church moves beyond her baby stage, where she needs the charismatic gifts to endorse her messengers, when she moves into the maturity of, of growing and expanding through the written word, through the spirit working upon the text of the epistles and of the gospels and of the Old Testament, when the church moves into her maturity, those elementary gifts, those extraordinary and unusual gifts yield to the usual and normal gifts. The gifts of the Spirit are there still. The New Testament is full of the list of them, but they are exceptional. They, they are ordinary, rather. They are not extraordinary. An apostle had the extraordinary gifts. And when the ordinary becomes the rule, the extraordinary passes away. Whether there be prophecies, they shall cease. Whether there be tongues, they too shall cease. They have ceased. So, with all due respect to our charismatic brothers and sisters in Christ, and indeed there are many fine Christians in the charismatic and Pentecostal movement, you are not under the impress of miraculous or charismatic wonders and gifts. Ordinary gifts, yes. And so what you're spouting when you're speaking in tongues is not a language, it is gibberish. Because tongues in the New Testament are a language, a known tongue. Otherwise, what's the point? If it's an unknown gibberish, nobody would benefit from it, which is precisely the Apostle's argument in 1 Corinthians. All right, yes, go ahead. Yes, I have, because I went to Pentecostal meetings years ago when I was a student in seminary to examine it and and put it to the test. And I listened to their interpretations, which were uh, very often almost the same kind of thing. But I'll tell you a story about a student at Dallas Theological Seminary in Dallas, Texas. He memorized the 23rd Psalm in Hebrew. He went to a charismatic meeting and he began to praise God at the time in which they were giving their charismatic testimonies by speaking forth the 23rd Psalm in Hebrew. And then he asked for an interpretation. And the interpretation, of course, was nowhere near it because nobody in that audience could understand Hebrew. And he did it in order to prove that charismatic, the claim to have charismatic miraculous tongues is false. And William Samarin, who wrote the book on uh, tongues uh, out of UCLA, he was an international linguist. He knew something like 300 languages and dialogues. Samarin tested all of the recordings. He heard something like 3,000 hours of speaking in tongues. And at the end of his analysis of that, all of that lingo, he said, there is not one known language in anything I've heard on these recordings. So, you can, as a Pentecostal charismatic, you can praise God for your excitement in this 
gibberish which is pouring forth. I can even grant you that the Holy Spirit may be enabling you to pour forth this gibberish. Just don't tell me that that's a known miraculous tongue. It's your emotional outlet. It's your venting in terms of syllables, guttural syllables. If you've ever listened to it, it's not very pretty to listen to. Well, at any rate, miraculous gifts have ceased because the need for miraculous gifts have ceased. This is the book. This is the standard of the bond of the Christian faith. It's the written word of God. It's not some miraculous tongue or vision or prophecy. Those are over. And, in many ways, we're better off for it. Wouldn't you rather have this full volume than somebody's private prophecy or vision? All right, I'll leave it at that. Any other questions? Yes. The disciple is a follower. The apostle is commissioned in the same with the same three things that I just enunciated. So the disciple would not necessarily have been commissioned to <clears throat> by the risen Christ. The disciple would not necessarily have the miraculous gifts. The disciple may or may not have seen the risen Christ. <clears throat> we can call ourselves disciples when we are apostles, though we have we are followers of the risen Christ. We haven't seen him. Okay. All right. Now, let's note with respect to this statement that Paul makes about being an apostle, let's note the prescript in the other Colossian letter. What's the other Colossian letter in the New Testament? Philemon. Okay, so keep your finger there in Colossians 1 and turn over to Philemon. I want you to look at the prescript of Philemon. And tell me what is different. Okay. Uh, Hold that for a moment, Ben. What else do you see? Ben, go ahead. Paul, a prisoner. All right, notice how he describes himself, okay? He describes himself in Colossians 1 as apostle. He describes himself in Philemon 1 as prisoner. Both of these letters are going to the Colossian Christians. Why? Why does he not say to Philemon, apostle? Aha, you never thought of it. Very good. Did you hear what Kay said? Okay. Okay, Kay? <laughs> Say it a little louder. Very good. Yes, he, he begins his letter to Philemon without asserting his implicit apostolic authority. He's trying to persuade Philemon. So he's coming with a rhetorical uh, device, a term which will appeal to Philemon 
Namely, to, well, you know, he's writing to me out of his imprisonment. Now, it is true. He's doing the same thing to the, in the Colossian letter. But you see, he begins with his office to the Colossian Christians, to the church as a whole. To Philemon, he begins with his bondage because he's drawing Philemon into the drama of the other one who is in bondage, namely Onesimus, the converted slave. So that's the reason, in my opinion, that's the reason for the difference in the two prescripts. Paul is using a rhetorical, emotional device. He's poignantly drawing Philemon into the drama of the narratives about to unfold in that epistle. Here, he's using his apostolic authority with the Colossian Christians from the outset. Now, that doesn't mean it's heavy-handed, but he's making a note of it at the beginning. Why? You're nodding your head, Art. No, you can take take the thing off. I can still see that your head was nodding. You you had you had a thought there? No, no. Okay. Yes, go ahead, Kay. Very good. And why does he need to establish his credentials right away? What's at stake here? True, but why he wants to assert his authority at the beginning? About what? No, Art? Why is he writing the letter? To inform them of what? Yes. A problem that is at the at the heart of the turmoil in this congregation. Now, we won't get to it until chapter two, but nonetheless, it's there from the beginning, and he knows it's there because he's been informed of it. Okay, and we'll read through the first chapter and we'll see how he has come to be informed of it. But the center of this letter is really the issue which is disturbing this congregation. So he begins with a note about his apostolic authority simply because he wants them to know, even though he hasn't seen them face to face, look, it's not me just, uh, you know, a bosom buddy Paul. It's me, apostle of Jesus Christ, that's talking to you about this. And this issue which is troubling your fellowship. Okay. So he's, he's using the apostolic card in order to establish his, uh, his power, his authority, although he's not a power broker, his power and authority to speak on the matter that is disturbing them. Now we note the order of Christ Jesus in the Colossian epistle. Namely, it is Christ Jesus, never Jesus Christ. Let's begin with asking what those terms mean. Let's begin with the word... Go ahead, Marge. 
Yes, your English translations translate it differently. They do not translate it in the order of the Greek text. But the order of the Greek text in the epistle is always Christ Jesus. Never Jesus Christ, even though your English versions do switch the order. Okay? Now, uh, since, I, since I'm working off of the inspired text, alright, not the English variation, I'm not quibbling with the English variation, but it, because the Greek text says something, says the order is otherwise, I want to think about why that is so, and let's begin then with the words themselves. What, what about Christ? That's a title. What kind of a title? Divinity. Not really. Messiah? It means Messiah, right. It is what language? Christ is what language? Greek. Greek. Very good. What language is Messiah? Okay. Hebrew. So the equivalence, Christ equals Messiah, Greek translation of Hebrew word. Okay? What does it mean in English? It means Messiah. No, no, no. <laughs> What's Messiah mean in Hebrew? <laughs> it means anointed one. Correct. So, Jesus is the anointed one, even as David is the anointed one, anointed by Samuel as king over Israel. Many of the kings were anointed as well. So, Jesus is anointed. He's the anointed one. Where's that story? Is he anointed with oil somewhere? Because the anointing of the Old Testament kings was with oil. Yes, it's the baptism of Jesus. He's anointed not with oil, but he's anointed with what the oil symbolizes. That's what the oil represents. The oil represents the descent of the Holy Spirit, even for the Old Testament kings. It was a testimony to the fact that God was bestowing his spirit upon them in measure. So Christ is anointed in perfection with the Holy Spirit because it abides upon him. And God speaks about him in that role as the one who has, possesses, and abides in the Holy Spirit perfectly and fully. All right, so the Messianic figure is, in terms of its fulfillment, not a political role, even though the Jewish expectation is that it would be a political figure. He's a spiritual figure, a figure full of the Holy Spirit. All right. Now, the word Jesus. What language is Jesus? It is Greek. So, what would his Hebrew name be? Joshua. Or as we were reminded on Sunday in this congregation, God saves, God saves. His mother says, God saves, come here. His friends in the street, God saves, come on out. Very interesting. <laughs> Struck me uh, when that was presented that way. This is exactly right. Josh, that's what Joshua means. <clears throat> so, Joshua and Jesus mean what? Savior, yes. And 
Where do we find that definition even in the New Testament? Yes, what book? What chapter? What verse? All right, now I'm going to come to the Linwood people. What chapter, what verse? What book? Can we start with the book? No. Matthew. What did you hear on Sunday morning? It was Matthew. Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, but verse 17 is not where we have this definition. You at least got the right chapter. Matthew chapter 1. 21. You shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he shall save his people. There's the definition of Jesus right there in the text. Savior. Jesus. Joshua. You shall call his name Jesus. Why? What does Jesus mean? Savior. Right there in the naming of the child. All right. Now, that's the... Yes. Yeshua. Jeremiah. We're not talking about Jeremiah. 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 Well, they, the J for the Hebrew is a Y. Y. It's a Y sound. Okay, from from the the letter Yod, which it begins with the letter when you spell it out transliterated, it begins with the letter Y. Okay, now. Back to the question that's on your outline. Christ Jesus in Colossians, never Jesus Christ. Why? Why anointed one, Savior? Why Messiah, Savior? Why not Savior Messiah? Why not Savior anointed one? There's something to that, but I don't think that's what's in the apostle's mind. Remember, when he does this, he's doing something intentionally. Okay, this, this pattern is not incidental. It's not just an accident. He's doing something intentional here. So why would he begin with Christ? Why would he begin with a messianic title? What audience? It's Jewish audience in Colossae. Exactly. It's undoubtedly true that the hub of this church was started by Jews. Now, that's not the exclusive dimension of the church because it's grown outside of that. But the beginning was in this core of Jewish diaspora converts. So, Colossae's got a Jewish population. Undoubtedly had a synagogue. If we dig down into that pile of dirt and that mound we looked at last week, maybe we would find the outline of a synagogue at Colossae. There is a rep, there is a report in the historians, the Greek historians, that there was a large Jewish population there and Josephus verifies that, or at least he duplicates that testimony. So I think it is likely. And so as a result, as we note from chapter two as well, chapter three I should say, there are there are uh, uh, Jews and Greeks here, which means that there are Jewish believers, Jewish converts, and Hellenistic or Greek converts. All right, so he begins with the with the Messianic title 
because he begins with what would gravitate or drag the attention of the Jewish members of that congregation. All right, now finally, uh, before our break, this uh, possessive genitive. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. What's a possessive genitive? It's a grammatical form which strongly indicates possession or belonging to. Paul is saying by using that grammatical uh, structure, he belongs to Christ Jesus. Now savor that for a moment. Christ Jesus' possession is Paul the Apostle. Paul the Apostle is the possession of Christ Jesus, which means that Christ Jesus belongs to Jesus. Now I belong to Jesus. There's a hymn that we sing. Paul belongs to Jesus. That is his possessive blessing. That is his possessive gracious blessing. That is his identity. Paul, the apostle of, belonging to, possession of, Jesus Christ. Jesus possesses me. And I belong to Jesus. Okay, take your break, and we'll go on with the rest of the first two verses. The next phrase there to examine is the will of God phrase, which of course implies God's plan. And when we think of God's plan, we understand God's purpose. It was God's determination. It was God's decree. It was God's predestination that designated Paul an apostle. According to his foreordained goodwill and pleasure, God predestined that Saul of Tarsus would become Paul the Apostle. A decree that made Christ Jesus the possessor of Paul's life and Paul the possessor of Christ Jesus' life by the foreordinate counsel and good pleasure of Almighty God. The will of God here is a powerful phrase. It assumes all of what Calvinism and historic Orthodox Reformed theology means by the divine decree and the predestination of Almighty God. It was not an accident that that Damascus Road experience occurred And Saul of Tarsus became Paul the Christian by the predestined from the foundation of the world decree of God. That's what he's saying here. You don't necessarily have to agree with predestination. 
But that's what he's saying here. And so I'm pleading with you to agree with predestination. Now, you can get away without thinking of it that way, but that's not the way he thinks. Paul doesn't think of God's purpose and plan, his determination. God Almighty has a determination. He has a determinate mind. He has a determinate will. And when you say the will of God, you're talking about what God's will determines. Now, you can try to use your Arminian jumbo jumbo to get away from it, but it won't really work. Because you ultimately change the meaning of Paul's letters to the Romans and to the Ephesians, etc. So, come up a little higher to the Calvinism of the Apostle Paul. It's in the book. All right. Timothy is next. Why does he mention Timothy? Yes, he's a companion, been a great friend, a loyal follower of Paul and of the Lord Jesus. But why mention him here? Is he delivering the letter? It is possible that he has a hand in it. That is correct. Anything else? Even before... He presents the letter, if that is the case. Yes, there is something to it. It's, it's, it's like he's the extension of Paul in prison to the churches, some of them. Uh, also, Paul, the letter writer to the churches, particularly to the Corinthians. So, there, there is that relationship. But why to Colossae? I have a question. Art? I just a specific question. Was Timothy the one who started the church? No, he is not. Verse 7 indicates who did start it. But where did that one who did start it hear the gospel himself? Where did Epaphras hear the gospel? From Timothy? Perhaps, perhaps not. Epaphras heard the gospel probably from Paul himself in Ephesus, when Paul was in Ephesus for that three-year period. And it is possible that Timothy was with Paul. Well, Timothy is with Paul there. So it is possible that Timothy was known to Epaphras and therefore known to the Colossian congregation because of Epaphras. Okay? So there's a connection between, a potential connection between Timothy and Epaphras. Now there's another interesting reason why Timothy may be named here. It's because he was from Asia Minor himself. He's from where? No, he's from Lystra, which is near Derby, okay, converted on Paul's first missionary journey. And Lystra is down the road from Colossae. Now, it's not close by, but it is least east of Colossae. And it is conceivable that because he was from that region, he was also known to the Colossians. 
These are suggestions as to why Timothy is named here, in addition to the fact that he is a very close companion to the apostle. Now, notice that he's called brother, brother Timothy. Now, this term is not just used of Timothy here, meaning that he's a close companion, which he was, as well as a fellow believer, a brother in Christ, which he was. That is all true. Brother here testifies to Timothy's loyalty and devotion as a friend of the apostle, which is obvious from his presence with Paul in his imprisonment. Remember, Colossians is an imprisonment letter. The other Colossian letter, which is Philemon, specifies in verse 1 of its prescript, prisoner Paul and Timothy, our brother. Once again, using the vocabulary that we have here with the exception of that word prisoner. So, Notice how the same Greek word for brother reappears in verse 2 of that first chapter you're looking at. The plural brethren or brothers. Brother Timothy is identified with the brethren in Colossae. The relationship between Paul and Timothy, brothers in the Lord, is identical with the relationship of faithful believers in Colossae, brethren in the Lord. The Lord has brought into identical relationship brothers Paul, Timothy, and the Colossian Christians. This is not an incidental use of the Greek word Adelphoi. Now, note how this familial language, this family language, note in your text, keep your eyes on the verses, note how this language concludes with our Father. Sisters in the Lord included. God the Heavenly Father has made brothers and sisters of Paul, Timothy, and the Colossian Christians through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A family. This is family language. This brother word here is not incidental, it's not accidental. This family language, a family made out of heaven's power and grace, a family made for heaven's power and grace. This is familial vocabulary. He's drawing his readers into the family of God, into the family of heaven, into the family of eternity. Brothers, sons, daughters of the Heavenly Father.
All right. Verse 2. Now, the structure here has been skewed by the English translation. The English translations want to make a more readable English line there. So the New American Standard, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ at Colossae. The Greek original is literally in Colossae, Saints and faithful brethren in Christ, as your outline shows you. Now look at that line. What do you see? Come on, you've been with me long enough. What do you see? Two ends. Two ends. Very good. Where are they? Looks like an inclusio. Very good. Another name for where are, well, where, let's go back to the question that you didn't answer. Where are the ends? They're placed where? They're placed at the? Take the clause, yes. They're placed at the opening and? At the closure of the clause, beginning and end of the clause. So, there's an inclusio, or there's a envelope, or there's a sandwich. There's a sandwich. Very good. You're learning, you're learning. Paul did this on purpose. Keep it in mind. Paul did this on purpose. He didn't write this accidentally to put in at the beginning and in at the end of this clause. So now we ask ourselves, why? What is his purpose in doing this? He's enveloping. He's including. He's sandwiching the saints and believers in Colossae in Christ, isn't he? That's the reason he's done it. He wrote it intentionally. To show the Colossians that they're included in. They're sandwiched between. Which means we need to unpack the two in prepositional clauses or phrases. All right. In Colossae is a what kind of arena or dimension? Geographical location or arena. Very good. In Christ is a what kind of arena or dimension? This is Denison's class. What's the what's the right word? Christina? Eschatological, that's the word. <laughs> All right. So, in Colossae is geographical, in Christ is eschatological. Location where? Colossae location where? Asia Minor. In Christ's location where? In heaven. Eschatological in the heavenly arena. All right, now, let's break this down even more uh, particular. 
Let's look at space-time dimension for in Colossae. But then let's think of the opposite of space-time dimension for the phrase in Christ. Now, how would we label those blank lines that I put under space and time opposite dimension in Christ? I'm going to suggest space's opposite is aspatial. The letter A before the word spatial. Aspatial, without space. Time, the opposite of time would be what dimension? Atemporal, without time dimension. All right, so we're thinking here of the heavenly as without space, without time. Or have you ever thought of that? Or have you meditated upon the fact that heaven, God's dwelling place, where God is, there is no space or time? Oh, that confuses my brain. Yes, I sympathize. But nonetheless, this is a dimension which exceeds what we have thought or know. Keep in mind, we're talking about God himself, who himself exceeds our capacity to grasp him in detail or in fullness. Okay, so off to the right of each of those uh, phrases, preposition phrases, in Colossae, uh, we're going to write some words across the page, okay? So opposite in Colossae, the first, I'm going to give you the first one. And then we're going to contrast it with what would be underneath it in Christ. So the first one after in Colossae is physical. Space-time dimension is physical. We talked about the physical qualities of Colossae last week when we discussed the geography, the river, the mountain, etc. The physical uh, uh, locus of the city. All right, now under physical in Christ would be what? Spiritual. Very good. All right. Next. After physical, to the right, write the word earthly. That's a space-time dimension, right? Underneath it, what are you going to write? Heavenly, Heavenly which is aspatial and atemporal. Okay, the next, up on top, in Colossae, after earthly, write the word temporal. Underneath it, what are you going to write? Eternal. Eternal. Very good. All right, you're getting the pattern. Okay, now the next one, number four, opposite temporal or next to temporal, the word spatial. Underneath it, what are you going to write? And no, a spatial won't qualify. No. Okay, let's take it this way. Eternity is duration through Time, okay? What's duration through space? Infinity. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. <clears throat> the infinite, unbounded spatial dimension. God is not bounded by space. Heaven is not bounded by space. Okay? So, 
Underneath spatial, we write infinite. And finally, alongside spatial, up above the next word, historical, and underneath it, we would write what? Christina? It's your word of the day. Eschatological. There it is. All right. Now, notice we've got a continuum of relationships between time and eternity, between space and infinity, between that which is earthly and heavenly, that which is physical and spiritual, etc. The historical and eschatological tandem becomes a little bit different when we look at them in terms of the in Christ motif. Okay? Now, that's what the next series of words is going down your outline. <clears throat> we think of being in Christ historically because believers are in their time in history in Christ. And then we think of being in Christ eschatologically in the fullest sense. So, as Gerhardus Voss teaches us in his Pauline Eschatology and Other Works, this in Christ historical dimension of the Christian life, that is, our life now in Christ, is semi-eschatological. It's half-eschatological. And it contrasts with the final eschatological in Christ dimension, which is the perfect fullness of Christ in that heavenly arena. Right? You understand? We are in Christ now, okay, which is the next one. We will be in Christ in the eschatological. What's the phrase I want? Now. 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 You're, you're right, but I'm going to give that word later. Now. Not yet. There you go. The now, not yet. Okay, so the now is the experience that we have of being in Christ <clears throat> semi-eschatologically. The not yet is the final, full experience of the eschatological glory of Christ. All right? Present contrasts with future. Yes, we presently have, we are presently in Christ. We will be in Christ in a future way more finally. Go ahead, Ben. Yes, there you are. You are there not yet in the resurrection body, right? You are there, you are there already in Christ because you're seated in Christ before the throne, right? In the heavenly places. Ephesians 1. <laughs> You're not yet now. You are you are not yet there in your glorified body. Okay? So there is one full one further dimension that you have not experienced. Even when your soul goes to that glory, it is still not in that final state, right? So there's a not yet aspect even of the now. You now enjoy it spiritually. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes. That is that is true. But this, but this is a way this is a way of identifying what happens when you get there. 
under the in Christ eschatological? Because it's now, it's no longer, not yet, it's achieved. It, it, yes, but it's semi-eschatological. Keep in mind, what you have now, let's go to the next word, is provisional. Okay? What's the opposite of provisional? Stronger. You're getting there. Consummately. Consummately. That is, all that the, the, the eternal dimension with full resurrection glory is consummated in heaven at the second coming of Christ. <clears throat> so what we're talking about here when we're using the final eschatological, we're talking about what occurs after the parousia, after Jesus returns, which makes a difference in all Christians, even though they enjoy the benefits of what anticipated, what precedes it. It doesn't make it any less real, but there's a dimension of it that is realer, is, is more. In other words, your body-soul experience of that resurrection glory is greater than even your soul. Paul says he has, he wants to be clothed upon. Remember that? Second Corinthians 4, he wants to be clothed upon. Why? Because he has a sense that the soul is still going to be denuded. It's not going to have the body in union with it. All right? So there's this, this, there's this element to that uh, consummate aspect. All right? We now, in Christ, in our own history, have the mystical union. That is, the spiritual, the, the, the mystery of being united to Christ. We're in Christ, united to him. Okay? What's not yet? What's what is still to be experienced? Face to face. Face to face. You see him as he is. Wouldn't that be glory? You're going to see Christ and his risen body standing in front of you? And you being related to him, communing with him in that relationship? See? It's something you don't, you have here. You're here. Your hope of that. You anticipate. You long for that. You meditate on that. There you have it, the full reality of it, because he's there. That's still scary to me. Oh, you won't be afraid of him, believe me. I know, but I am now. <laughs> then repent. <laughs> okay. Constantly. Mortal contrasts with immortal. <clears throat> All right, now you really participate in faith now. That's a semi-eschatological reality but you fully participate in the consummate dimension beyond faith. You won't need faith there. Because what you believe on will be the reality of what you possess beyond faith. The fullness of understanding exactly what Christ is. You possess in hope now Semi-eschatologically, you will fully possess beyond hope. Hope will be no more. Hope will be replaced with fruition. Perfect, full, complete fruition. And finally, the ephemeral stands over against... What's ephemeral mean? Oh, is that a new word? You know, ephemeral is transient. That that which varies, okay? All right. 
You could have it in a sense that you can't quite grasp it, but it basically means, the Greek word actually means transient. All right, so ephemeral would be balanced by permanent or perpetual. 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 Try to keep a little bit of a rhyme scheme here. All right, now, you grasp then what this language of Paul in this epistle, which is true of all these epistles, but notice, I've listed out all of the in Christ variations in this letter. In him, by him, in whom, that is, in Christ, into or in Christ, with him, with Christ. You've got to list it all there for you. It's shot. It's like a machine gun. It's what Paul peppers his epistle with. And he does so in terms of this tandem, this relationship between the present and the future, the now and the not yet, the semi-eschatological and the consummately or finally eschatological. It's always there. So he's placing the Colossian believers in that drama. This is your story, he's saying to you. I, I sandwich you between you and Colossae, I sandwich you in Christ between the now and the not yet, between the present and the final consummate, between the mortal and the immortal. I, I sandwich you and I place you in that tandem. That's my story. That's your story. That's Timothy's story. That's the story of all who are in Christ. You relish, you delight, you rejoice, you praise God for the now. And you look forward with great joy and anticipation to the not yet. The other, the, the other ecstasy of seeing him face to face. He who bled and died on that cross for you. He who raised from that grave for you. You're, you are going to rise from that grave. You're going to rise from your grave because he did. You're in Christ in an anticipation of that very resurrection of your body. He went before you to demonstrate what it means to be in him. He died. You're dying. You're going to die. I'm going to die. He died. You're in him in death. He made death sanctified to you. He rose. He went through the final judgment. He entered into glory. He didn't get condemned. With all the sins that he was bearing, he should have been condemned. But he condemned those sins, not himself. So in other words, everything that you have to go through yet, death, resurrection, judgment. He's already been through it. So in Christ, you're through it in him. It's not going to come to you in a negative way. It's not going to be undone. It's not going to be canceled. In Christ means you're alive, not dead. Even when you die, means you're raised up. You're not going to stay in the grave. means you've been acquitted. You've already been justified. Because Jesus was justified. Jesus was raised up. Jesus died. Okay, so this is the point of this language. This is the point of this conceptualization of what Paul means by in Christ. It is a dramatic, it is a powerful type of vocabulary which has all of the power of a narrative story in it, namely the story of Jesus himself 
and you being identified with his narrative story. His story is your story. Your story is his story because you're in Christ. You're in Christ. He bound you. He, he, he possessed you so that you possessed him. He, the, the, the apostle of genitive of possession. Okay, any questions? Savor that, brothers and sisters. Savor that. That is wonderful stuff. All right, now, um, we're almost out of time. So, I think I'm going to leave uh, off here. And we'll come back to look at uh, saints and the textual issue and the salutation of the greeting, grace, and peace next time. So if you have any questions or comments uh, as we wind down this session, uh, go ahead and and, uh, put them forth, and I'll try to address them. Go ahead, Ben. So in a way, in the translation that we have, you kind of lose this this in and in. Yes. Yes. That's right. And this is a case where a more literal translation would have been better for the reader because it would have given the reader the opportunity to think about that sandwich effect. Okay? But you've had the benefit of me translating the Greek literally for you and explaining the literal uh, the literal word by word order of the, of what Paul wrote. This is, that's what came from his pen. Yes? I'm just thinking when Paul wrote to Timothy, he would call him son or child. Yes. But now he wanted him more of an equal. Is that correct? Um, now he called him brother. I think he, he, using brother of him and then brother of the congregation, the members of the congregation, in order to attach him to them and him and them to him, I don't think he wants to sort to single him out with the language of the pastorals or places where he otherwise calls him his son. Yes, he's very strong. That's another way of looking at Timothy. Timothy as the one begotten of Paul in the faith. That's strong language too. It's almost Trinitarian language. <laughs> Ponder that one for a while. <laughs> okay. Well, let's close with prayer then. Our Father, we rejoice that we are in Christ by the grace of your Holy Spirit and by the full power and presence and person of your dear Son, our Savior, Christ Jesus, our Lord, who lived for us that we can be in his life, who died for us that we can be in his death, that rose again from the dead for us that we can be in his resurrection, who is seated at your right hand, in order that we might be seated at your right hand in him in the heavenly places even now. Could we realize, Lord, the story is not over. And so we pray for your spirit to encourage us in faith and hope as we continue to walk our pilgrim way in this world, living in Christ and out of Christ for the sake of testifying to the glorious news that heaven has come 
to earth in Jesus, the Son of God, so that the earth and those of the earth can go to heaven in and through him. We extol and bless you for these marvelous privileges, and we thank you in the name above every name, which is the name in which we dwell securely, Jesus our Lord. Amen.